Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to bring you part two of my special episodes of the Anti-Architect Podcast. This episode is our second guest from Shadow Ventures and Shadow Partners. In fact, it's the founder and managing partner, KP Ready. We spoke to Jeff Eccles, the Senior Director of Marketing, on the previous episode of the Anti-Architect Podcast. KP Ready is the founder and CEO of both Shadow Ventures and Shadow Partners, a seed stage technology investment firm. He is a globally recognized authority in the AEC environment with AI, robotics, automation, mobile applications, and cloud computing. KP is a civil engineer by background and wrote the textbook, the ultimate textbook on BIM, BIM for owners and developers. He is a frequent lecturer at Georgia Institute of Technology and is a sought-after subject matter expert, frequently speaking worldwide on BIM and the built environment. KP has exited three successful technology companies and also one of and ran Enterprise Transformation at Gary Technologies, started by the world-renowned architect Frank Gary, which ultimately was exited to Trimble. He is also the general manager of ADTC at Georgia Tech, one of the oldest technology incubators in the country. KP, thank you so much for being my guest here on, on the podcast. Good to be here. Um, so I want to kind of tell a little story uh, about you um, and, and my familiarity with you. Back in uh, early 2019, uh, you gave me um, a, a space on your stage um, talking at one of your shadow summits, um, and I had just started developing a virtual reality tool. Um, I don't even think we had the name at that point, uh, but I came down with a few other people, some other engineers, and we gave a little talk about how architects and designers have basically been using the same methods for the last 200 years or more, and we haven't changed a bit, and that these series of technologies were going to help us design. And so you gave me that that uh, uh, time on your stage, which was amazing. And then years later, I'm not sure if you remember this, but you and I had a conversation over Zoom, and... Um, I was seeking advice about this specific tool and you didn't hold back. You provided me with very candid advice. Uh, and that honestly set me in sort of course corrected what we were doing with our technology and how we were using it and how we were marketing it. So first and foremost, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time and playing, uh, you know, and helping uh, me in some of the things that we've been doing. Oh, you're welcome. You know, not not everybody takes uh, my direct feedback as well as others. <laughs> so it, it's good to hear when uh, people took it and did something with it versus just um, hanging up the phone and getting mad at me. Yeah, I remember you said to me something like, listen, you've got a great idea here. It's a great thing, but you should do this and this with it, not what you're thinking. And I thought, oh, okay, that, that actually makes perfect sense. <laughs> 
Um, so I know you're not an architect by education, but you are an engineer. Um, and I know you know plenty of architects. So I figure I'll ask this question anyway. Uh, if you had to pick one thing, uh, what annoys you about most architects? Um, really, this um, dissonance that it's their customers building and project and not theirs. <laughs> yes, that is. A, I've, I've seen that. <laughs> yeah, turns out it's the client's building. It's not yours. Yes, I've uh, I've I've witnessed that before. I, I I think I might have told this on the on this podcast before. But we had a designer. I swear, I almost jumped over the table to strangle him. Uh, he. The client was saying that they wanted some detail on their building, and he he said, "Well, you cannot have that on my building." And I thought, "Uh oh, here we go!" <laughs> and uh, the client just immediately probably turned, you know, smoke came out of his ears and said, "Your building? What the hell are you talking about?" <laughs> but yes, I have literally heard those exact words. Yeah. Um, what are your and what are your biggest frustrations with the AEC industry in general? What what kind of bothers you about just sort of the the general industry? Um, I think that you know we tend to not be very good at being client centric or user centric. Okay, you know if we're designing and building a hospital. Um, it's not just about the hospital and the owners of the hospital. It's about the patients, doctors, nurses, et cetera. Um, and that we're developing and building a product that creates some experience for them. It creates some, you know, change in their life. It's, it's, it, it's a bigger calling. And I think, you know, if your head's down trying to get submittals done and respond to RFIs, I think we we tend to lose sight of that. We tend to lose lose sight of the why and the who. Mm. Um, and and I get it. You know, the, we have budgets, we have schedules, we have all these other pressures that don't that seem very tactical, and it's it's easy to lose track. But I think just how we think about being client focused and client centered, um, we we could do a lot better at it. Mm. Agreed. Agreed. Um, I want to talk a little bit about BIM, um, building information modeling for those that, that don't know, um, because you were one of the early adapters and investors, pioneers in BIM. Um, I didn't realize that about you as I was doing the research. Um, you know, you, you correct me if I'm wrong, but you were an early investor in Revit. Um, I was not. I actually missed the. I went on a six-week ah. vacation, and uh, when I came back, they were sold off. <laughs> oh, but you had <laughs> met with them before, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> um, yeah. But you worked with Frank Gary, who was a former professor of mine at UCLA, and and honestly, one of the nicest people I know uh, in the in the business. Um, and and Gary was sort of developing his own version of BIM. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. That's correct. Um, so tell us a little bit about that and what kind of gravitated you towards that technology? Yeah, I think, you know, the story starts a little bit sooner because so I, I was started writing software when I was 13. For my, my dad was a civil engineer, so I was writing structural engineering software for him as a kid. Um, so when I started my first startup um, in 97, it was construction management on the web. 
Hmm. And all the contractors kind of laughed at me. Like this web thing is a toy. We're not ever going to use this to do business. So I, I fortunately pivoted off that. But um, when I saw BIM and I kind of missed the opportunity for Revit Technology Corp, I'm like, these are the same people that said the web was a fad <laughs> and wasn't going to go anywhere. This is a very complicated tool. It, it, it's got such high potential. Um, if they didn't, they couldn't figure out the web a decade earlier. I'm not sure how we're going to get there, you know, with this. So, um, I just saw the potential of it in a, in a major, major way that in a way to really kind of transform how we do things. Mm. Yeah. And I, I would say, so, so do you think we'll ever get to delivering the, the model, the BIM model as the actual deliverable? Um, one of the things that I, you know, one of the initiatives that we have in our office with our, our technology folks there is, you know, we, we put all of this information into the model. Um, you know, every detail, everything is, every, a wall knows it's a wall, floor knows it's a floor, um, all the ductwork knows what it's supposed to do and why. And then at the end of the day, we basically just flatten it out and print it out on giant sheets of paper and then hand it to a contractor and say, okay, here, you know, build this. And, and mm -hmm. you know, 50%, maybe even 90% of the value of that coordinated model that exists in, in sort of that virtualized world gets thrown out the, you know, out with the, the water, right? So mm -hmm. um, do you ever think we'll get to that point where we can deliver the model as the, as the actual final product? Well, I, th I think I have two, two things. One... I think this disconnect between what designer a designer's deliverable is and what a contractor's deliverable is, is is the big starting point, right? We we should both be aligned that we're delivering a building, right? That the deliverable is a building. It's not CDs. Mm -hmm. CDs are a step towards communication, right? The reality is when we have a workforce that has been trained on this language of 2D and specs, which is what it is. Um, I don't know that the person in the field swinging a hammer will know what to do, right? There, it's, it's not the form of communication mm. that they will use to build the building. And so I think the, the question really around, you know, is if your job is not to deliver a BIM, but your job is to deliver a building, how does BIM, the CDs, how do they all play into, into that factor of delivering a building? Mm -hmm. And I don't know how much benefit there is if you hand a drywall contractor a BIM. I'm not sure how helpful that is to them. Mm -hmm. Unless you actually drew the details on how to hang uh, drywall. Now, one of the things, you know, uh, I spent, a, I didn't spend a lot of time over at Geary, but I spent enough time. And I think one of the things that Frank was pretty focused on is my, my buildings are very unique. It's not something any builder has ever built before. And we have to be super descriptive in the BIM around means and methods. Hmm. Because if this is being built in the middle of nowhere, we don't know the, we don't know the capability of the contractor. And so, how he really approached BIM was designing a constructible model. 
Hmm. It wasn't for drawings. It was, here's where you will weld. Here is where you will torque this. You know, it was, it was very detailed. It was a lot of work, but, and it also required a team that actually knew how the, the details of how a building went together. Sure. Right. And so I think the question, um, around delivering the BIM, it's like for, for what purpose and why? Okay. If it's, you know, if it's to deliver what I call the owner's manual of the building, Hey, um, you know, owner, here's what, here's the 3d representation of your building. That's hopefully pretty close to what was actually built. <laughs> uh, and here's what's in it. And it's kind of a, a record, a 3d record that could be beneficial. Um, but we, we saw, you know, when I was writing my book, I talked to over a hundred owners and, and by the way, it's been a minute since I wrote that book. And the fact that people still buy it is a little bit mind boggling. It tells <laughs> us how fast we're moving around here. Um, my book should be irrelevant, but, um, you know, they said, look, you know, the maintenance person's not going to look at a 3d model to go fix a pipe. You know, yeah. they're going to look at the plans anyway. So I, I think this idealized view of, are we ever going to deliver a bill? Like, how about we deliver a building? How about we use tools like BIM to simulate and mitigate risk, both, you know, construction risk, design risk, operational risk, um, and really use it to run kind of sims on, on the building mm. and know that, you know, until robots are building buildings and a robot can take in a 3D model and go build it, we're probably going to have to have um, plans and specs as one of the deliverables. Sure. Sure. I don't think it goes away. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And I, I, it's funny you mentioned the, the accuracy of the model because you know, we're working on a very large project in New York City where we're doing several floors in a brand new building. I mean, literally this thing is brand new. It just opened. And the first thing the project managers and the contractors and everybody involved with the building has said to us is, yeah, yeah, yeah don't use that BIM model. <laughs> you know, stay away from that. Start over. It's a mess. It's not accurate. You know, run away from it. So very much along the lines of what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> it's also interesting too, you know, the contractors that recreate the BIM model off the CDs. Yeah. There is a value of them having to interpret, you know, it's all about interpreting the design. Sure. And for them to interpret in their office and ask questions then versus asking questions in the form of RFIs or whatever else versus while they're in the field, there is actually value. I know there's this idea like, oh my God, we're, we're building the model twice. But the reality is I think the contractor and the subs benefit a lot from understanding the project yeah, and being able to ask lots of questions and hopefully find gaps um, in, yeah. in, in the design. One of our most valuable employees is in fact someone that worked for a contractor for 20 years uh, mm -hmm. who's come back to, you know, was an architect, worked for 20 years and now has come back into architecture. And it's a very different perspective when he's looking at a CD set and he's marking it up. You know, you'll always say, I, I look at the drawings of how it gets built, not about the pretty picture that you created and, you know, on the sheet. And mm -hmm. I think if we can do more of that around it, you do get a better deliverable at the end. Doesn't matter if you print it out or, or, or project it in a 3D map on the, on the wall. It, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. 
Um, before we get into shadow ventures and shadow partners, I just want to talk about some of the definitions of things. Um, so my audience is largely architects and designers, engineers, furniture folks. Um, you know, I would love for you to define, you know, what venture capital is, what corporate venture capital is, what what the difference is with private equity, things like that. These are terms that get thrown around a lot. I'm not sure everybody knows exactly what they are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so private equity is really having equity ownership, either 100% or some portion of in a private company, i.e. it's not traded on the stock market. Um, it, it's a private company. And the mission with private equity is usually to they find companies that have a locked up value, i.e. maybe they're not being operated very efficiently, and they buy them, they create efficiencies, they grow them, and then they sell them to the next person. Or sometimes they take it public mm -hmm. and they get their money out. Um, venture capital is a very similar model other than we are focused mostly on the creation of, of uh, enterprise value. In other words, the value of the business, not necessarily the cash flows and optimizing. We're 100% focused on growth, which means we invest early in product ideas you know, there are VCs that invest in services companies. Most of them are not very successful. Um, generally, VC applies really well in product companies because product companies require a phase of research and development. They, they require two to three years of building something um, before you give a sell it to a customer. Uh, services, as long as you have a customer, you can fill out a timesheet. There, there is no uh, developmental stage. And you're only as good as the, the latest thing that you just have a service for. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, corporate V. So the thing with regular VC is we are we operate under a, a rule called a law called the power law. Power law is you invest in 10 companies. One of them delivers all your returns. And nine of them just kind of go away. Mm. Um which means you're looking for betting on 10 companies that have the potential to be a billion dollar company that have accelerated growth and high potential. Um, and so that's our job is to figure out, does this company have the potentiality? A lot of companies, I probably see 50 companies a week. I talk to 12 entrepreneurs a week. Um, many of them are good businesses, but they are not going to grow at a rate of pace to make up for the other nine investments that didn't go well. Mm. Um, and so that's what you're always looking for. You know, you're, you're really looking for that grand slam. Um, singles and doubles are not our game, you know? So, um, so that's venture capital and part of, and a lot of times, you know, we use terms like winner takes all, um, where we are really looking for companies that will own and dominate a market. Mm -hmm. you know, we don't use a search engine. We Google things, right? <laughs> Um, that's what you're looking for. Right. You're Uber. Um, corporate VC is less about the financial returns. It's much more about strategy to the business. Hmm. And so they might invest in things that don't have a winner takes all type strategy, but they are early companies that if they invest in, they think it'll give them either insights into their own business. Uh, it might give them a product or a tool that they can um, using their own business to either make, creates more efficiency or it's a new service line, et cetera. Um, but 
CVC is much more about corporate strategy um, than it is about finance. Okay. And so tell us about um, Shadow Ventures and Shadow Partners. Um, you know, uh, what are you looking for when investing? Um, just a little bit of the history of the of the company. And then I want to get into a little bit about, um, you know, the line of, of business that you're in specifically to construction tech and, and, yeah. and, and, you know, all of those things. Yeah. I think, you know, you'd mentioned, um, you know, I was running Georgia Tech's incubator, ATDC, um, and it basically decided they didn't want to start another company. I was just going to invest. So I was starting to invest on my own. Uh, and then I started getting phone calls from friends in the industry saying, look, we're doing innovation. We're doing this. We're doing that. Why don't you come help us? So really started off doing a lot of consulting work. Um, so helped Thornton Tomasetti set up their innovation strategy, uh, post-Widelinger integration mm. and launching Twin, which was their incubator and spinning out companies for them and, and doing all of that. And those those very, very successful, um, as well as companies like JB&B. So did work for them. So there's and, and several architecture firms uh, as well. And it was just like, what is this innovation thing? What should we be doing? We built this IP. We think it's worth something come take a look at it for us. Um, and what that evolved to was KP, how do we invest in startups? Um, and, you know, I was like, well, there, here's the problem. To, for it to work, you have to invest in 10, 20, 30, 100 startups. Like it's not pick one here, one there. You'll never get enough diversification and you'll never get a winner. You'll get lucky, but you, you, know, you might get lucky, but you'll never get a winner. Um, and so they said, well, why don't you go do that? So why don't you go start a fund and you go do that and we'll all invest. So, um, we're now on our second fund, but you know, our investors are the Thornton Tomasetti's and JB and B's and Siska Hennessy's and mm -hmm. Pencil Phelps and WGI and Walter P. Moore and probably another 50 that I've left off, you know, so. <laughs> Um, and, and the idea is if you really, you know, I, I don't know that I envisioned it this way, but it, it really kind of makes sense now. If we believe our industry has a lot of opportunity to move forward, but um, no one firm can invest in R&D in a way. It's not like pharma. Pharma, you can have 10 companies and they can go to spend billions of dollars in R&D. No one company in our industry can really invest enough in R&D to make a difference. And, and so, what the firms really become about is having industry invest in our fund, and it's and it's essentially becomes the engine for for growth around research and development and investing in startups that that are making a difference. And all of our investors, um, so our investors they're they're called limited partners. So we usually just refer to LPs. Mm -hmm. So most of our LPs are all from the industry, um, and it's fantastic because as much as we know a good bit. They know the nuances. Sure. They know, you know, they know all the different little details. They know the cultural headwinds. You know, oh, you, you could sell that into a contractor, but if they're a union shop, you're not going to sell it to like, I don't know those things. So it, it really is team ball. And, and the way I always say is, you know, none of us develop a building alone. Why do we think we're going to solve some of the greatest challenges facing our industry alone? Like it's team ball. Yeah. Do you do you believe that our industry is because I I think we get a bad rap with this but but do you think we're slow to adapt 
technology and innovation? I don't, I don't know that we're, you know, it's slow compared to what, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's where um, I get a little fired up is, is when they want to, you know, people want to compare us to other industries. And it's like, you cannot take the largest industry in the world and start comparing it to much smaller industries. Uh, industries that, you know, I love my iPhone, but guess what? I throw it away every three to four years. We don't get to throw away buildings every three or four years. We don't get to, you know, we have the opposite of planned obsolescence. That's true. (laughs) Um, And I think there isn't really an industry that's like that. There really isn't an industry that has to worry about one, um, that it has to last for a long time and be design relevant and engineering relevant and last and has massive operational costs and touches society in major ways and has to stay relevant to society. Yeah. Um, and I think it's people that want to trivialize it by saying, oh, we're laggards or whatever. I'm like, no, we're doing the best we can moving the biggest and most impactful industry in the world. Absolutely. And and I, I one of the things that I try to talk about is everything we do is unique, or at least 99.9% of what we do is unique. I mean, even if you take a Chick-fil-A or a McDonald's, while they may look almost identical, there's a nuance in every single one of those places based on site conditions, based on building departments, based on local codes. It's always different. And someone has to interpret that and figure it out. And yes, maybe there's an AI somewhere that can do that. But at the end of the day, that has to be translated to someone's hands that physically actually build something and mm-hmm. put something together. We're not, listen, it's amazing. BMW can do on-demand manufacturing and they can build a three series. And then after that, build a supercar right behind it and then build an SUV after that, you know, all in the same, you know, with the same robots. That's amazing. But we don't do that. We don't have the same thing over and over and over again. So it yeah. makes that adoption really difficult. And, and I've, I've owned a few BMWs and they generally last about five years. That's right. That's a, good, <laughs> a very good point. <laughs> you know, yeah. they get to, be, you know, it's amazing. They get the benefit of saying, oh, sorry, we have to replace your entire electrical panel. I'm like, it's one years old. <laughs> yeah. You know, we don't, we don't get to do that, but no one, can, no one cuts a slack around you know, performance and, and that kind of thing. And so I, I think, you know, and, and I think that that's the difference. And, um, you know, we start talking about like national rollouts, you know, and you're dealing, right. And you're dealing with different architects, different engineers, different everything. Yeah. In every market you go into. Yeah. Um, and I always tell people, it's like, we're, we look a lot less like manufacturing. We look a lot more like the movie industry. Yeah. It's very true. We show up, we do a project and, Every once in a while, we work with the same actors, directors, producers, but, you know, not always. And no, nobody wants the same thing. Um, you know, we, we could, yeah, I guess you could do a Sears Roebuck, you know, pre-manufactured house in a factory and bring it to site. Um, but everyone wants some sort of tweak on that. And everybody wants uh, something a little bit different. And nobody wants to live in a neighborhood where everybody's house is exactly the same from place to place to place. So I think people fool themselves to say that we're not, um, you know, we're not innovating in that, in that realm. Yeah. I was, I was one of the first investors in a company called Icon 3D. They did 3D printed houses. 
And I used to get asked all the time in early days, I got asked like, why, why did you invest in this? Are you nuts? And I said, what they're doing is the difference between building a house or building a home Mm -hmm. that an affordable home that the owner is part of the design process is fantastic. They'll never get that experience somewhere else. They'll get to pick what color shutters or brick versus stuck, you know, some, some basic things. But, um, and I think that's the difference between like in the prefab world, I don't, I don't think we can create pre-manufactured houses. I don't know that we can do homes. Like, I think we're getting there with technology, but you know, I, I drive around Atlanta. There's still some of those Sears robot homes around, <laughs> and, you know, and you can, you can see them right away. But, um, I think that's the difference between a house and a home. Yeah, agreed. And I, I do know Icon, the 3D printed homes that you're doing, and they are unique, um, which is sort of the point, right? Of having, uh, to me, actually, anything 3D printed should be unique. It should be something that you can't get um, through any traditional, whether it's manufacturing or building or even just a, uh, you know, a, a glass blowing or an infusion, um, uh, method because you can do layers upon layers that are, are, are different ways of working yeah. and it, it pushes the profession, pushes design ultimately. It's forward. also, I, I think, I you know I get a lot of questions about like, oh, like I'm, I'm not sure if I like the design. I'm like, it's a new design style. Like don't, don't compare it to what we know. Mm -hmm. It's a new design style. And you know, I like contemporary homes. I'm not a big fan of traditional homes. Like it's the same thing. And it's, it's not going to meet the, you know, you can't compare it to other homes when it's an entirely different style. Yeah. Listen, I thought the Tesla uh, truck was the dumbest thing I've ever seen. And then I saw one in person and now I want to get one. So, (laughs) 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 Um, so talk to me about a little, uh, a little bit about the, the various companies, maybe the top companies that you, you have now that you've seed, seeded and grown, um, Mm -hmm. in the industry. What are some of them and where do you see them going? Yeah. Um, so I think some of the ones I'm excited about, um, you know, I came from the civil engineering side, so. Um, you know, one of our companies, EcoBot, is basically streamlining the entire wetlands delineation and kind of the environmental side of things. And and part of the, what's interesting about what they're doing is they're collecting so much data. They have more data than anybody. So when we talk about climate change and, you know, the first early, you know, the canary in the coal mine is biodiversity, right? We We know this. And so the fact that they're collecting lots of data that'll give us early indicators around biodiversity changes, uh, I think is super meaningful and, and they're, they're doing a great job. Um, Green Badger, who does like lead management, both from design into construction, they've done extremely well. Um, once again, I think our industry wants to do the right thing uh, around all these topics. But if the tools don't exist and it's too hard, then it's it's easy to abandon stuff. So I think Green Badger has really helped by delivering a good a, good, a great product that helps people do what they want to you know want to do, but do it well without the friction has been a, a good one. Um, Bot Built, which is um, another one of our robotics companies, they have robots that frame houses. Hmm. So 
you know, from us, we have, we say, oh, we do got 3D printed houses and we have, you know, stick built. Um, and I think if you look at the larger driver of building, you know, how do you build affordable housing? Well, you build them affordably. Yeah. It's fairly simple. Mm-hmm. You know, um, government subsidies, all you know, that's all great, right? Uh, I'm not in the policy business. I'm in the, like, how do we do things better business? And I think there are, um, if you just look at the, how much, um, actually, Tommy with Green Badger was showing me these waste reports that he gets on construction jobs, because that's part of what they track in their system. And I'm like, it's amazing how much tonnage gets hauled off a new construction site, not a demo site, a yeah. new construction site. Um, it's it's just unbelievable. So, you know, I think uh, robots have a way of being more efficient, you know, not, not as creating as much waste. So I think there's a great opportunity to reduce how much waste we create. I was also surprised when I was looking at these reports, like how much of it ends up in the landfill. Sure. I mean, it's just astounding. And none astounding. of that is ultimately tracked in, you know, in lead or, or well, or any of those standards, right? You know, the waste yeah. the during construction. Yeah. Actually, Green Badger tracks it. Yeah. That, which is amazing. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, um, and I, I think, and I think that's where, you know, we've, we've got to really think about how do we just do things better. Um, so yeah, those, those are some of our companies that I think are probably impactful to your audience. We have another company, JetBuild. Um, if you think about construction management software and project management software, um, I grew up using Primavera. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a beast. Yep. Um, we haven't really seen any products come out that are easy to use for all parties, for the contractor, you know, you would never give your developer a login to your Procore system. It's too complicated. Right. The jet builds done a really good job of simplifying, you know, call it, kind of call it construction management for the masses. It's self-service. You log in, you get going, you send invites to people and it all just works and it's easy to use, you know, kind of yeah. not a lot of training required. It's very intuitive. Yeah, you're right. There is, there's the pro cores. Then there's like, we use a new, we use new forma on things. They don't speak to one another. You end up with Google sheets sort of somewhere hidden in the background <laughs> and <laughs> who knows what's going on there. Uh, um, before we talk a little bit about AI, um, you know, your, your career, you know, from the outside looking in looks perfect, right? And I know myself as an entrepreneur, as an owner, um, it never is how it looks, right? Um, can you share a story about a time when you had to make a difficult decision that significantly impacted sort of your career trajectory? Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Um, the other book I wrote is What You Know About Startups is Wrong. Hmm. Um, and a lot of people buy it under this idea that there's some magical, here's the five steps to... <laughs> In fact, it's none of those things. Uh, it's a little bit my life story. Uh, it's a little bit of like all the, to your point, like uh, the failures and, and all of that. And I think um, for me, the biggest thing was um, early on not understanding how to treat people um, and and really not knowing how to balance you know, my life. So my book talks a lot about um, you know, everything from almost dying to my divorce to the, I talk about all of it. Right. Wow. And, and really waking up one day and say, like, uh, the most foundational thing I've got to be is a, a great dad that raises fine young men. Um, that's really the job. All this other stuff is just kind of fun and games. Right. <laughs> so, um, so, so that was kind of my wake up call. Um, and really, 
understanding like how important uh, it is to like shape. Not, I mean, and now it's, I think my, my older kids, I have a 23 year old, a 21 year old and a 14 month old. Oh, wow. Um, so I do find myself spending a lot of time with other people's kids too. <laughs> <laughs> trying to like help shape and influence. And, and honestly, lately just trying to get them to come into our industry. Oh. I spent so much time with these kids. I'm like, you know, you can fly a drone professionally. They're like, really? Where? I'm like, for a construction company. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> you know, try to get these kids excited. We have a problem. You know, um, we have a problem. We we lack the sizzle that a pizza delivery app company has. You know, it's like so yeah. trying to talk to these kids and bring them the sizzle. Yeah, I, I love it. So let's talk a little bit about innovation and artificial intelligence, because um, I feel like, you know, you're you're the right person to talk to that uh, to talk about that with you. You're you're obviously touching it on some of the companies that you're using. Um, where do you predict architects and designers being able to harness the power of AI? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. I think this fear of um, you know, your your customers and developers just could use AI and design a building. And and my joke to that is that would imply that they actually know what they want. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, the, which is 0% of the time. That's true. Um, so whatever it is, they're going to need help like feeding the AI all the information to, to actually iterate what they actually want and what will work. Um, I think, you know, my, my feeling, and, and it's so I always find it so fascinating, like when people read my bio, that bio is like 10 years old. <laughs> and so I've been talking about AI for a minute, right? And we've made investments in AI, sure. you know, four or five years ago. And so a, a lot of what I'm seeing is um, AI for the masses right now. You know, when I was at Georgia Tech, I was doing building websites in 1992. Uh, it was very difficult. It wasn't, you know, now people go off and get Squarespace and they have a website, right? Mm -hmm. So what you've really seen is AI to the forefront and, and being consumer grade so that everybody can use it. So I think that the, what we have to look at as an industry is your customers know about AI. If all we do is use AI to build operational efficiencies in our back office, it will be a fast, fast path to the bottom. Hmm. The customer, your clients will understand this. They won't want to pay you less. Like, oh, aren't you just using AI? Like, why am I paying you so much? And so I think that's where people have to really think differently about how they approach using AI. And, you know, how do we use AI to create, because sometimes they don't exist, create or shape a client experience? In other words, we take technology and we move it furthest away from the customer experience as possible. Hmm. We 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 talk about it internally. Oh, now we can do now we can do door details faster, right? That that has nothing to do with the client. Client doesn't care, right? And so if you really say flip it a little bit and say, how am I going to use AI to maybe even define a client experience? Because the reality is, our clients basically we're a necessary evil for them. If they could snap their fingers and just have an asset that generated cash flow tomorrow, they would just do it. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't know that they're saying like, "Man, I love my architect." So what they really say is, "Man, my architect's really smart." Very frustrating. <laughs> so frustrating. <laughs> right. Um, 
you know, I had one developer say, why does this industry act like they've never built a building before? <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's that the opportunity is really to say, like, take a step back and look at your business, your firm and say, like, what is my strategy and how do I want to shape my client's experience? And then use tools like AI to do that. Mm. Not, not the other way around. You know, and the further you get away from your client, that should be the wake up call that maybe you're making the wrong decisions. It's a really good point. I, and, and I feel like I've already heard that in our industry, right? Oh, they're going to, it's going to do the construction documents for us, you know, and that part will be out of our, out of our realm. And I, A, I don't see that happening because again, everything's different, but yeah. maybe it, at some point it does. But it doesn't really let, matter. Let's assume it does. Let's assume it does. But does that mean I get to spend more time with my client? Does that mean I get to spend more time doing more research around, you know, how my pay, how the patients are going to use a hospital? Does it, you know, like, does it mean we actually get to spend more time on the strategic things and working with clients in a closer way? And really, you know, it always used to, as an engineer, I used to always feel like the minute I left the room, that's when they actually started talking about the project. It's like, okay, civil engineer is done. Get out of here. Um, and, and so I think if it frees up time, if, if you can auto-generate, think about the opportunity to iterate designs. Yeah. And do it quickly. Think about the opportunity to say, hey, it turns out office space is at an all-time low. We need to rethink our office space. We've got too much office space in this mixed-use development. Or I'm using a... a um, a predictive data platform that says in 10 years, this is really going to be about retail. It's not going to be about office. So let me design something that I know will adapt in the future. Think about predicting adaptive reuse in the future. Sure. Let me work on those things. Um, because whether we like it or not, the drawing part's always been a commodity. Whether it's AI doing it or a room full of people drawing, right? It is. And I, ironically, I find that, you know, I was, I was, very early on in college, I did a lot of 3D renderings and I was the 3D modeling guy. I was, it was new and coming up when I started and, you know, I would do these amazing, uh, at the time they, they would take, you know, days to render. You'd get these, uh, you know, what were, what were theoretically beautiful, although now they, they're done so quickly and it's almost like cheating, uh, renderings. And then when I got to the profession, I actually sat next to a watercolorist for the first few years of my first job. And what I learned from him was that the watercoloring actually was um, was a better design, part of a better design process because it was it left a lot up to the imagination mm -hmm. uh, going forward, where the where the 3D rendering was very specific, and the clients, you know, they worried about. Well, that's not the person I would see in my render. Uh, that's not the person who's going to use my. Uh, my my building, I I'm looking for this demographic, and you'd concentrate on just you know weird things that had nothing to do with the architecture side of the thing, and the and the watercolorist would could crank through you know ten rent ten you know beautiful watercolorings in a day, and they'd have design you know design decisions made by clients in no time, and then you'd have these precise 3D renderings that took you know, we'd go back and we'd have to redo them and redo them mm -hmm. and redo them. You never got anywhere with them. So in a weird way, the technology sometimes pushes us further away from, you know, making good design decisions along the way, which I yeah. find interesting. 
Yeah. 100%. What are some of the companies um, that you have under your umbrella that are doing AI? Um, so one of the ones that is doing a lot of AI is a company called Aaron, A-R-E-N.ai. So you basically take drone imagery, fly it around a bridge. It will take all that data, create a 3D model of the bridge. It will find all the cracks, prioritize the cracks, and run it through engineering analysis software. Um, to predict maintenance. That's where they started was bridge bridges. Now they do facades. Sure. They do roofs. They do pavements. And it's it, it's it's like magic. Wow. And and you think about that, you think about maintaining assets and maintenance and um, you know, we kind of wait for things to to break before we maintain them. <laughs> um so really understanding and being able to plan and budget for that stuff is it's pretty strong. And then, you know, the runway use case is really interesting because shutting down an airport to to inspect the runway um versus just flying a drone real quick yeah. and getting all the data you need is is pretty pretty amazing. Absolutely. Wow. Um and last question on the on the innovation side. Do you, do you think architects and designers really know what it means to innovate? Not really. Um, I think, so, you know, we talked about Shadow Ventures. Shadow Partners is our advisory business. So, we spend a lot of time with firms helping them build better strategies. Um, and I think if innovation is driven by the IT department, it's probably not innovation. Um, so I think there's the iterative innovation, innovation and adopting tools, but then, you know, when I talk about how do you design a customer client experience, that's also part of innovation. Sure. And I don't, I don't think that strategic thinking is happening, um, by a lot of firms. That's what we're getting called into a lot. You know, part of it is like, okay, Pete, what do we do about AI? You know, should we <laughs> shut it down? Like, what should we do? Like, yes, you should shut it down. <laughs> shut down the internet too. <laughs> Uh, while you're at it, but um, Go back there's that Android. policies, yeah, the policy stuff we're getting sucked into, and our uh, consultants are getting sucked into that. But it's also like the opportunity, like how do we think about this, um, and then also how do you think about building IP and building products um, in a firm, whether it's software, hardware, whatever. Um, there's been very limited success because it's a lack of know-how. Mm-hmm. One, you have to understand the process of building a product, and then two, you have to understand how to how to fund a cap, you know, cap you know, get the capital together to fund a product. Sure. Once again, that R and D effort. Yeah, absolutely. So, final question: uh, Is there anything we haven't covered that you would want to tell the listeners? Um, I I will say this. Um, I think in the last five six years, I've really seen architecture firms slow down. Hmm. I think early days of BIM, architects led, the, led it. I think VR, AR, early days with Unreal Engine and stuff like that. I think architects really led it. I, I've really seen the last five years of really kind of the architects falling behind. Um, and I'm not, I, I'm not sure I know why, right? I think because I think a lot of the tool, a lot of what the innovation is, whether it's robotics, it's really happening on the build side, sure, and on like energy transition and energy management on the kind of on the operation and maintenance side. So I think it might be that some of the macro trends have moved away from where architects think that their expertise lies, um, which I kind of 
disagree with that thesis. I mean, I think affordable housing, macro theme, not seeing that much. I see it out of you know, smaller boutique architects sure. talking about it. But I do think, I feel like architects have gotten stuck in the the BIM and ARVR quagmire. Mm-hmm. They're just still stuck there. Interesting. Well, I love that because that's a great challenge for a firm like mine that does have an incubator for technology and is trying to push the push the profession forward. So I'll be back to you with some more ideas uh, at some point. Fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to be here on the podcast. Um, you know, you're truly pushing the profession forward, I think, like no one else, um, which is which is a, a service and an, an amazing place to be in. So thank you for that. Um, to learn more about uh, Shadow Ventures and Shadow Partners, you can check out their website. So it's Shadow Venture, it's Shadow.vc. And what's the partner's website? Shadowpartners.co.co. Okay, perfect. And then obviously, um, KP's got uh, his Twitter and his LinkedIn and all that good stuff. Anything I missed? No, that's, it. that's about it. I do, we do have our summit coming up. So that's end of October. That's, I think, on the Shadow Partners website, yep. shadowsummit.com. Awesome. I hope to be there. All right. All right. Sounds good. Well, uh, thank you again. I really appreciate the time. 